So again, I mean, it just always continues to amaze me the connectivity that we have as professionals across the country and across the world. We're bringing a really cool guest, Rand Schwarzkopf, who's an orthopedic surgeon. He's a full professor at NYU uh, in New York. He's a, a joint replacement specialist. Um, it, when I was tr- uh, sort of going through the research, I was having a hard time understanding how he jumped from from Israel to the U.S. to do his residency, but he had dual citizenship because he was born here in the States, but then born and grew, grew up in Israel. And did his Israeli Defense Force time and figured at that time that he wanted to become a doctor and his path and, and the things that he's doing and his knowledge base are really absolutely outstanding. What's really cool about this episode is we really try to educate you as listeners out there as to the process of, of hip and knee replacement and things that you can do in order to make sure you get great outcomes. Great, great episode. I know you're going to like it. We continue to thank our sponsor, OrthoLaser Orthopedic Laser Centers. They continue to offer MLS M8 technology for chronic and acute orthopedic pain as an alternative source to opioids and possibly even avoiding surgery. The franchises continue to spread across the country. It's an amazing opportunity for orthopedic surgeons and doctors and even medical device reps to become part of the growing technology. OrthoLaser Milwaukee and OrthoLaser Rochester just opened. We have another five in the queue. Come and join the OrthoLaser franchise family. Hashtag follow the fro. From medical media, this is the Ortho Show. Hello, world. Dr. Scott Sigmund, your favorite opioid-sparing orthopedic surgeon here for another episode of the Ortho Show podcast, where we bring you the best of the best in the orthopedic world. We are super excited today to have Dr. Rand Schwarzkopf, who's with us, who's a professor of orthopedic surgery at the NYU Langone Orthopedic Hospital, formerly known as Hospital for Joint Diseases. I'd like to wish him a mazel tov as becoming a full professor there as of December 20th, if I'm not mistaken. You can sort of fact correct me if need be. Uh, but he's an orthopedic surgeon that specializes in joint replacement in particular. Uh, so welcome, Rand. It's a, it's a real pleasure to have you on. Thank you. It's a pleasure uh, for you and, uh, and an honor for you inviting me to join you. And, uh, and all of the facts you stated are correct. So far, so good. <laughs> so Bill Levine, who is the official fact checker of the Ortho Show podcast, uh, we put him off to the side for right now, but I'm sure he'll want to maybe jump in later on. But uh, I think you... Uh, you really have a fascinating story. It's very unique compared to the, the classic story that we hear, although we've had orthopedists from all over the world who have trained all over the world. And uh, I guess uh, I'd like to just start from the beginning. So, you know, we've talked a little bit and, and got a little bit of your history, but you were born in the, in the U.S. to an Israeli mother and an Ecuadorian father. And then you moved to Israel at the age of five. So tell us about that. So, so my father moved to Israel when he was 18. He joined the army and there he met my mother. And after they got married, they, they decided to do their education back in the United States, where he started before that. So I was born and my younger brother was born during that period. And then they finished their graduate work in Carnegie Mellon and they uh, headed back to Israel, which they considered their home. So I was the oldest child and I was five at the time. And then we moved back to Tel Aviv and I basically grew up in Israel, a normal Israeli uh, childhood and adolescence. It was fascinating because as I was rolling through your educational experience, I saw that you went from, we'll we'll talk about it, from medical school in Israel right to an outstanding residency here in the States, which is not very, not an easy jump for most, which 
then sort of uh, kindled the idea for me. Perhaps he maybe have dual citizenship, and and sure enough, uh, I'm assuming you do as as an Israeli citizen as well. Yeah, that's right. I do have uh, dual citizenship, uh, and and it did help. It kind of opens the door that you know, it's not going to be a problem for a visa or an approval to do the residency. But you still have to jump the hurdle of uh, what we call the foreign medical graduate. Yes, of course, exactly. So, so you know, so you're you're in Israel. You move over. You become an Israeli citizen, and really, that's where you're born and bred from the age of five and on. So, when did uh, medicine strike a chord for you that uh, that you thought about becoming a doctor? I think sometime during my you know your military service in Israel, you go to the military from high school. So you don't really think in high school what you want to be when you're old. That kind of happens during the army. Or like most Israelis in my groups, uh, after the army, we go backpack around the world. I did it for a whole year. And you kind of look for yourself or find yourself and decide what's your inner goals and uh, desires. So somewhere in my army, I decided sitting behind a desk or looking at a computer and doing algorithms and writing software is uh, not for me, uh, even though both my parents are engineers. And uh, medicine always intrigued me. So that's kind of how I got there. Interesting. And I think not all of our listeners are aware, but military service is mandatory in Israel. And uh, could you describe that process and that path? So, you know, the military for men is three years at the time when I was there. And for women, it was two years It's straight from high school. During high school, you kind of uh, same thing as in the U.S. We're trying to get into a good college. You're trying to get into a good unit. So you're kind of junior and senior year. You're concentrating on tests for the army and uh, where you want to go there and trying to get into different units. And it's this is the real deal. I mean, this is not like pushing paper behind a desk. If if I'm not mistaken, you were actually uh, you were a part of a special forces platoon as well. You were a leader of the special forces platoon. Yeah, I started in a, in a small special forces. I became an officer and, and the Israeli army is a bit different than the American army. You don't go to become an officer. Everyone gets to be a soldier. And then some become sergeants and from sergeants you become an officer. So you kind of grow within the ranks. Uh, so, yes, I stayed an officer and I served four years. Did you see active duty? Was that uh, what was what was happening at the time? I'm not familiar with the, with the exact dates. So I was in the army in 93 to 97. It was very interesting times. Uh, Lebanon was still uh, South Lebanon was still occupied by Israel. And we had there were constant clashes with the Hezbollah in Lebanon. And simultaneously in May 94, uh, Arafat came into the West Bank and took control over the Palestinian territories. And the uh, Palestinian authorities came there. So it really changed what was happening in that areas in the country. Yeah, I mean, this this is real deal military duty. I mean, putting yourself uh, in, in the line of fire. And, uh, you know, it's just amazing. It's just something that we sort of take for granted here in the U.S. that, you know, it's a uh, you decide if you're going to join the service or not, but it's a mandatory service in Israel. So, you know, uh, amazing story for sure. And thank you for sharing. So, so you make it through your four years and then you decide, uh, okay, now it's time for college. Were you convinced at that moment that it was going to be a medical school track? Um, yeah, I decided I was planning to go to medical school, um, just before I went to travel around the world. So I applied and put my application in. I actually was accepted to a medical school while traveling and I deferred by a year. So I can uh, continue traveling and backpacking around the world. Uh, in Israel, it's more like in Europe, the medical track. There's no undergrad. It's a uh, straight through medical school. It's a it's a three years, three and a half years of preclinical work then three years of clinical rotations, half a year of board exam. So it's about eight academic years, which include a 12 month rotating internship as part of your medical school. Yeah, and I did my research. You had, you had a hard time getting through there. You graduated as a valedictorian, and uh, you know, kudos to you. And so you kick ass at medical school, so you're doing great. And now you're like, you know, was there any thought about staying in Israel? Were you always committed to, to want to go to the U.S.? 
Uh, there was always a thought of staying in Israel and I had options. I think at one point during my rotation, I enjoyed everything. I decided I want to be a surgeon. In the beginning, I wasn't sure I wanted to be a pediatric surgeon, a neurosurgeon. And uh, the top of our class got to go to Albert Einstein uh, Medical School at the time in Montefiore. And we, I did two rotations there as a in my sixth year in medical school, I did a month of neurosurgery and a month of orthopedics. And kind of there, I kind of finalized that I want to become an, an orthopedic surgeon. And the surgical specialties uh, training is much better in the U.S. than it was in Israel at the time. The non-surgical, I cannot say the same. But the surgical, because of the volume differences, uh, was significantly better. And I decided I want to go for the better education. All right. So you spend your eight years for your entire medical school experience. You come over to the U.S., you, you take a look, you get, a, you get a look at this and you say, all right, this is what I want to do. Now, explain to the audience, you know, what's the process? How did you how did you get into your residency as a foreign medical grad? You still had to go through that process. How difficult was that? So, so somewhere, I think, in my end of my fourth year in Israel, I, I took my step ones kind of preparing. And luckily, I got a good grade that did not stop me from my application being uh, looked at. Um, then I did my second step, of course, and I, I spent two months doing research in Mass General just before my rotating internship. I had two months off, so I, I came over and I did some orthopedic research. And then during my rotating internship, because I'm considered still a medical student, I came and did a sub-I, sub-internship in NYU. And I think that was a key factor. I think without that, probably they wouldn't have looked at me. Luckily, I had about nine interviews. I, I traveled and did the interview trail like uh, most resident applicants. I uh, put my rank list in and NYU took a chance on me. And I think they're still happy. They brought me back as their as faculty. Yeah, no, I, I've been watching your history as well. But so was it joint diseases at the time where you did your residency or was it NYU or was it a combination of the both? What was it? So uh, joint disease and NYU joint residencies, I think in 96. So it was two separate hospitals with a joint residency. They combined the residency program. And 2006, the, the day I started my uh, residency that year, NYU uh, purchased or bought uh, Hospital for Joint Diseases. So when I started, it was called NYU Hospital for Joint Diseases. That was the official name and on my diploma. Yeah, no, and it was one of the, it still is. I mean, it was one of the top orthopedic residencies at the time. I'm 10 years, you know, uh, older than you, but still, you know, vividly recall, you know, joint diseases, HSS, Columbia, you know, these great residency programs within New York City. There's no, We just had Bill Levine on, uh, who's going to be coming on for, ne for next week's uh, episode. But, uh, you know, there's no competition for orthopedic surgery in New York. There's you like there's one on every corner, right? You trip over orthopedic surgeons. But so, all right, so awesome. So then you come in and then once you're in, once you're into residency, obviously it's, you know, you've gone through the gauntlet. You're going to make it through as long as you don't screw up. And then you, uh, then you go back to Boston, you do a fellow at the Brigham. Uh, you know, I'm from Boston. I train up here and so uh, spend some uh, uh, in private practice up here. So we know the Brigham very well. We know the docs there. That must have been an amazing year for you, for sure. It was amazing. I still was lucky enough to train under Thornhill and Dick Scott and uh, Daniel Estock that still uh, operates there. You know, all my revision experience and I, I take from what I learned from him. So I, I managed to learn from the masters and meet the masters, you know, they're now retired. So I feel very luckily that I have the chance to go through the people that initiated joint arthroplasty. We share that. I did a lot of my residency training at the Baptist. So Thornhill and Scott were over there. And I mean, I'm still throwing in PFC total knees right now. Things have been around forever and we learned from the best on how to do it. And uh, really remarkable guys. So what an amazing experience that you were able to get that. And then, so from there, then you go out to California and I got to ask, you went to UC Irvine, 
Is my your fellow Sabra Zeev Kane? Zeev Kane? Where, did you spend any time with Zeev out there? You guys must know each other. Yeah, no, I, I know him well. I came there. He helped recruit me there. Together, we built the whole concept of a preoperative surgical home. And uh, my my practice, basically, the joint replacement was the pilot program of the surgical home at UC Irvine. Uh, and so, because there was no other joint replacement surgeons, I came there to a place that didn't do joints for a few years. So it was a great experience working with him. And after three years, uh, I decided I need to move on. And uh, my old boss from NYU uh, told me he wants me back. So I packed my bags and went back to uh, New York. Fantastic. I mean, it always amazes me the connections that we all have. You know, the perioperative home, Zeev's a dear friend of mine, and I go to his course routinely. And I did not know that fact that you were the initial orthopedic surgeon for for that study. So that's fantastic. I love it. We learn all these great de- great details on the Ortho Show from all these amazing guests uh, that we've had. So so then you get you get invited back to Joint Diseases NYU, and and you've been doing amazing work. And I and I think it's I thought what we would do now um, because I think that one of your passions it seems from a lot of the. Uh, the research that you do is you're really, you know, concerned about patient outcomes. And I thought what we might be able to do here is try and educate some of our listeners. So again, I always say, you know, my mother's listening to the show. She listens to every show. So we got to be able to say it so that even our patients understand. And we have a lot of non-orthopedic surgeons that listen as well. So I thought I'd just throw up a couple sort of of hot button questions for you and just get your impression. And maybe we could educate the listeners a little bit. What do you think? Sounds great to me. All right, terrific. So one of the things that we get a lot of, and I'm confused as a sports medicine orthopedic surgeon because I get asked the question a lot is, hey, doc, should I have an anterior or posterior approach for my hip replacement? What are you telling your patients these days? Um, you know, I tell them that, you know, when we change the engine from the hood, the dashboard, or from underneath the car, as long as the engine is changed well, the car will drive fantastic. So uh, all of the approaches have advantages and disadvantages. As time goes by, even those advantages and disadvantages are kind of disappearing due to the techniques used, due to the different hardware and materials and implants we use. Currently, I don't think there's any difference in the outcomes that should really interest the patient. I think they should find a surgeon they feel connected, a surgeon they feel that they want to put their well-being in his hands, a surgeon that does this surgery a lot, that has a lot of experience, he's high volume, and has good outcomes that they had recommendations for him. That's the surgeon they should go. Uh, I don't walk into the pilot and when I fly and tell him how to fly. I go to the airline I trust and the plane I trust and I get on. Yeah, no, I think that's a great analogy. We talk about that a lot, orthopedics and surgery and the similarities for, for pilots and flying planes for sure. But I think that's actually really good advice. And and that's what we hear a lot of, you know, find the guy that is doing a lot and uh, let them be comfortable with what they do. And if you stay out of the way more often than not, you're going to get a good result. So some of the other confusing things that are out there for patients in particular, and even for some, you know, of the of the generalist uh, orthopedists, I, I was hoping you could really give us a, a true sort of definition of what you would describe for for three things in particular. So first is robotic assisted surgery. Uh, second is going to be navigation, and then third is going to be patient specific instrumentation. Could you give us a little summary of those three things and how you see uh, where they are right now in 2021? So I think we're looking more at an ecosystem. I think uh, there's not going to be one technology. All of the implant companies will have an ecosystem of technologies. They'll offer you different options. So you, can, as a surgeon, you can choose what's the best fit for this patient. Navigation allows you to do very accurate cuts. 
robotics allows you to do accurate cuts and balance. And I think the robotics of the future is not these robots we now know, these tanks in the room. It's basically going to be smart instruments integrated with artificial intelligence and smart uh, ability to operate. You'll have overhead displays. You'll have augmented reality. You'll be able to see the directions of your instruments. You'll have the angles in the air in front of you on the body. You'll take the images from before the surgery and put them onto the anatomy of the patient. Uh, and the same thing will be with uh, patient-specific cutting guides. This will be something in the armamentum of your smart instruments. And the robotic or the technology will be able to evolve all of it together. And, and are we going to have to be in the room or can we do this from home? Do you want my your surgeon to be at home, or do you want this, your surgeon to be in the operating room? Um, well, I think I think we pretty much know the answer, but no. I mean, there's a lot of virtual reality uh, aspects of the technical side of this as well. I'm sure you're familiar with that in residence training, in, in particular. No, no. I think for training and uh, sorts like that, some virtual reality for practice, uh, learning anatomy, and and repeating different movements. Yes, I think that's. Uh, something, of course, that's possible. Uh, but I think that for surgery, at least myself, I enjoy doing surgery. I don't want to be in a Da Vinci kind of thing and playing a video game in the side. Uh, I want to hold those smart instruments in my hand and do the surgery. I'm more for the type of Star Trek that the doctor holds something, passes on the body and still talks to the patient and touches him. <laughs> yeah, I, the, that's one of my favorite episodes where Bones in the uh, in the hospital, the ER with that woman for the kidney transplant. But uh, we've used that before. But, uh, you know, I think that uh, I think that's really pretty fascinating. And I think the technology is really ramping up. You know, we you know, we you look at the, the striker system for Mako and, and that's the heavy robot that you're talking about. But you're exactly right. Just about every medical device manufacturer now <laughs> is pushing down the line. Uh, you know, for robotics. And then I think the navigation is really I ideal, you know, to be able to really make sure that what you're doing is where you think it's supposed to go and it enhances the outcomes at the end of the day. That's the hard part, right? I mean, the numbers that you need to be able to show a difference in the outcomes, you know, can be daunting when you're designing studies for sure. But, uh, you know, I think it's, uh, it it's, it's fascinating. There's a lot of great things that are out there that are coming out. You would, another thing that, you know, you talked about the perioperative home and, and, you know, I, I know you must be engaged in, as far as trying to improve patient outcomes when it comes to pain management as well. What, what's your strategy right now trying to minimize opioids and be able to help your patients still get through their surgery successfully? I think some of it is education to our patients because other countries do joint replacements and their opioid consumptions is much lower. Some of it is what we're used to our patients. So I tell my patients this is not pain-free and the goal is not to be pain-free. I think in hips, it's very easy. We manage a lot of patients in hips, really opiate-free. Opiate Knees are a little bit more painful, especially because you have to do exercise that cause discomfort. Uh, but I think explain to the patient that he needs to be able to sleep. He needs to be able to watch TV or read. And if the pain is below that level, that's acceptable. Uh, I think a lot of it has to be maybe if we can stop the pain from starting, uh, a little bit more control in the beginning with maybe long-acting anti-inflammatory or local anesthetics that actually last. You know, we did, we did have the X-Pro that didn't really bear out just too much because maybe two, three days, that that's not the difference. Maybe something that lasts a week or two weeks uh, that sits inside may help. Uh, but I think stopping the cascade and the education of the patient is probably the best thing. Are you involved in an Iovera study right now? I'm not involved in Iovera, but I'm familiar with that. Have you been using it in clinical practice at all? It's not integrated in our system yet. If you brought up one of the one of the difficult things actually to show differences, our patients do so well now. You know, half of my patients, and I'm in a big hospital system, go home the same day. 
the other 40% go home the next day and about 10% less stay two nights. Their pain is controlled. They go home. It's very hard to assess differences, something that actually makes a difference in pain or outcome in the short term. That's why it's very hard to convince a hospital or a payer to pay more for something that's hard for us to prove that makes a difference. I think we're, that's our main challenge now. Yeah, and just for the listeners, Iovera is a is a not really a new device. It's been around for a while, but it's a cryoaxonomesis device where basically uh, a week or so before surgery, under local anesthetic, you you freeze a couple of nerves that are around the knee that, that provide or give pain, and so those nerves regenerate over about three months. And so what Dr. Schwartzkopf was talking about was sort of a longer acting form of pain relief over time, and and there's definitely promise there. We've been using it. Quite routinely, we've been been happy with it as well. But you know, again, I think you're you're absolutely right. The education of the process, you know, communicating to all of our patients, really addressing that to make sure that they know that we're all on the same page together, and we're going to do what we can to sort of minimize the exposure. I think really makes a big difference. So uh, again, you, you're you're doing a lot of great research, and you seem to be really pumping out the papers there, which as a full professor you should be, and I'm sure you're including your residents and and other fellow attendings as well. You know, give us an idea of some of what you think are the most important. Because I know you, you know, I'm a sports guy. You know, we don't need the data quite as much, but you AUKUS people, you know, the the total joint guys, you're all data driven. It's all about the data. You want to move things down half a percent. You got to be able to show it and prove it. Give us, give the listeners three things right now that you think have been pretty impressive from evidence-based joint replacement right now that perhaps would improve patient outcomes. So I think one thing that's been amazing is uh, tranexamic acid, TXA, right? It's, a, it's not a new medication. It's been out there. It costs pennies on the dollar. And it, the, I think the past five years, it became integrated 100% in every joint replacement surgeons that utilizes it. And we kind of broke the barriers of uh, contraindications now. There's no real contraindication not to use it. Uh, and uh, we found it was so many papers published. So you can probably have put a few binders of books of papers showing that it's enough that uh, you just put it next to the patient, it works. Uh, so, you know, 100,000 ways of giving it, and it really decreased transfusions. I don't, I don't even recall when I gave a blood transfusion to a patient. And I still remember as a, uh, a resident that my, our patients used to donate their own blood to get it back. And it was all about the transfusions and everything, you know, and if a patient needs one, you give them two, because if you're already giving, why give one, give two? That was the mantra. Now, not only don't give, we'll never give two, it always will be maybe one. And, and we actually see, so I think that was monumental. In, uh, in our pain meds. So and just for the audience, again, it's a medication that can be either given IV, now is given orally too, in the outpatient centers for, for people going home. But it, yeah, topical as well is right, all three, topical, oral, as well as IV. Uh, and it helps to reduce bleeding. And uh, there's a lot of there was a lot of concern about whether or not it was going to increase the chance of blood clots and strokes and heart attacks and all that. But I think we've, we've pretty much proven at this point that there really aren't any reasons to not use it, if I'm not correct. Yeah, I agree. Uh, we, we're just having a new pu- publication coming out at JBJS, our main journal, uh, showing that it's safe in patients with coronary artery disease, which was always a concern because of having a clot in the cardiac in the heart. Uh, so that was one. Number two, I think the, uh, the U.S. has led the world in moving to aspirin or going back to aspirin as a deep vein thrombosis prophylaxis. Uh, even with all our legal uh, history and uh, malpractice history of the U.S., the surgeons here were strong enough to follow the evidence, and we went away from Coumadin and 
other strong anticoagulants. So we don't see drainage. It, it decreases our infection rates or wound complications. It's easy to send patients home on it. It's very easy. The compliance is very high. So I think that will be number two. Uh, and the third one will be in the pain relum. I think we made a lot of progress with the periarticular injections, the multimodal pain management. You know, if I remember when I was a resident, a total joint patient would be a patient connected to a PCA, which is a, uh, a button that the patient presses to get more medication with morphine in his vein. Patient will sit on this CPM, which was a machine that moves their leg lying in bed for three, four days. We'll need three people to lift the leg and change the dressing because it was so painful. And now the patients go home from the, from the PACU, from the recovery room, just walking with a little bandage on their leg and a few pills. So... It's a tremendous change in the past 15 years. No, you, you, you are absolutely right. I mean, it's just remarkable uh, how much better the experience is now for the patients, for sure. So, so while we're rolling out three things, uh, we're going to stay on that theme for a little bit. And so, you know, like, I, like my, my buddy Dave Perbilla, who's my partner, who's a joint replacement uh, specialist, and he you know, got his fellowship at the Baptist for the O'Frank Fellowship. He always says to me, hey, Siggy. It's like you're doing those sports total knees. How are they, how are they coming out? So 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 I want to what I want to comment on is perhaps what you might say to uh, the general orthopedic surgeons that are listening out there that are still doing hip replacements or maybe they're doing hemiarthroplasties for fractures. Give them three things that they can do uh, to make themselves better at what they do uh, and hopefully improve patient outcomes as well. So I would say uh, come to ACAS, come to the ACAS meeting become a member because I think that it's a two-day meeting that you get a lot of information. Uh, there's a lot of symposium and, uh, and stuff on the website that you can listen to. Uh, if you're a surgeon that does hemiarthroplasties, I think you should cement all of them. And if, uh, if you don't know or don't feel comfortable cementing, you maybe uh, try and learn. I think there's enough evidence to support that. Uh, you can add antibiotics in it as well. Use uh, transexamic acid and try and use your, your partner's protocol. So if you're a sports doctor or a generalist and you do have some fellowship-trained joint replacement surgeons that are using the current protocols and pathways, just join them. Do the same. Don't, don't run your old pathways and uh, protocols. Very, very sound advice. And now I want you to give similar advice now to the patients that are listening out there as they're trying to decide especially in New York City where there's all those hip specialists that are doing all their total hip replacements. What, let's take it out of New York, but let's just say the average person who's trying to decide you know, what type of a hip replacement they want to have. What are the three things that you would advise for patients as they're seeking out uh, what, what surgeon's going to do their surgery or perhaps what type of surgery it should be? So I don't think that the, the patient should go into what type because it's all the same. It's a hip replacement. It's a knee replacement. I think there's a mis there's no such thing as minimally invasive. And until uh, you or I figure a way to put it in through one of our orifices or through some tube, we still have to cut the bone with a saw and we have to put an implant into the bone. So it's as invasive, doesn't matter how it's done, because that's how the, invas the, the invasivity of it is measured. I would uh, recommend that the patient will find someone that this is what the surgeon does. Whatever surgery he needs, he wants to find a surgeon that this is what he does from morning to evening. He does a lot of it, and his outcomes are good. His patients are happy. The people that work in the hospital will come to him to do the surgery. So if you go to somebody and you see nurses as his patients, other doctors as his patients, you know this is the right person for your operation. But then again, you have to feel comfortable. You have to meet the surgeon and feel that this is someone that you can put your trust in him. 
And if you find a combination of those three things, I think you found your surgeon. And there's more than one surgeon like that. There's not just one person. Yeah, no, I think that's really absolutely fantastic advice and, and great counsel for our listeners for sure. Well, listen, Rand, I mean, I love these stories. I mean, every time I have another guest on, I always learn more than what I brought for sure. Uh, I'm always amazed as, as to the, the circle of, of relationships and professional relationships and friends, how many people we all share. Uh, you have an incredible, unique story. We really appreciate your time and coming out and being able to share that with everyone on the Ortho Show today. Uh, it's, it's my pleasure. And uh, thank you for inviting me. This, uh, this is always a uh, fun thing to do. No, it's my great pleasure. This is Dr. Scott Sigmund, hashtag follow the fro, host of the Ortho Show. Till next time.